in Forbes magazine in, in May of this year, I, well, May, yeah, May of last year, 2012, uh, <clears throat> there was a, uh, a little a quote, I'll, I'll quote it to you, it says, Wright Management, a subsidiary of the giant staffing firm, Manpower Group, just released a new snapshot survey that underlines the dissatisfaction among American workers. At a time of high unemployment, lackluster job growth, and major uncertainty in world financial markets, only 19% of respondents said that they were satisfied with their jobs. Another 16% said they were somewhat satisfied, but the rest, nearly two-thirds, said they were not happy at work. Uh, someone has described our society as a society of inextinguishable, inextinguishable discontent. We have been trained either consciously or subconsciously that we need to acquire, consume, upgrade, and enlarge. Uh, we want to have it all. We want to have more money, more time for ourselves, more success, more creature comforts, and a more satisfying family life. And the concept of enough is, uh, is rare. <laughs> it's almost missing. And no one in this society, from the world anyway, is advertising the values or the virtues of contentment. And I want to look this morning at this, this concept. Where, where are we? Where are you as a believer if you were to sort of evaluate how content you are with what the Lord has given you and what the Lord has provided you? Um, I think if we look at the scriptures, they paint a very different picture from what the world is, is giving us today. And I'd like you to start to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes 6, verses 1 through 3. Solomon wrote, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Look at that, he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it's, it's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Some interesting observations that Solomon made here, and I think uh, as we look at it, uh, it, it really gives us um, some good insight into this idea of contentment. If you were to summarize these verses, Psalm is really saying you can have it all, but without contentment and the ability to enjoy it, you'd be better off if you'd never been born. That's quite a different picture than what the world is presenting uh, to us today. Uh, this is really a hyperbole, obviously, and it shows us that it's the satisfaction or the contentment and not the possessions or the position or the family or the circumstances that that what is what life is all about. Uh, contentment is truly one of the most 
significant and satisfying and sensitive issues of your life as a, as a person and especially as a believer. We see from these verses that it's God who gives us contentment. We don't generate it. It doesn't come through possessions. It doesn't come through length of life. It doesn't come through position. Uh, doesn't come through family even. God has to, you can have all of those things and you may, you may know, I know, I'm sure you know of people who have many possessions, they have a huge family, and they're just simply not satisfied. They have a great position in life, and they're just simply unsatisfied with it all. We see from these verses that Solomon says that contentment, true contentment, is really God's gift to us. And I believe that it's really available to all believers. God has given us, as believers, the ability to be content. Uh, we have to work at it, as we're going to see uh, this morning. And we have to realize some things. But I think that it's, we have to understand that it's God's gift to us as believers, and it's available to us as believers. So I raise the question, or maybe it's a problem to you this morning, how much money do you need? Or want? How much time do you need for yourself? How much recognition? What comforts do you need? What situations do you need to change in your life? How much is enough for you? And really, how do you find contentment? And that's what we're going to look at today. The definition in the English, if you look at the dictionary, contentment is a feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. Satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. Not desiring more than one has, satisfied with things as they are. And I want to say that contentment really is accompanied with a settled peace that we're not agitated inside because of our status, our possessions, or our situation. In the Greek, there are actually three words used for contentment, and they strengthen the concepts of being pleased, strong or sufficient, not having need. And thus, thus it's a condition of life. Paul, we're going to be looking at the verses, obviously, in Philippians, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ that strengthened me. But he says, in all situations, I have learned to be content. It's a, he said it's a condition of life in which he doesn't need any aid or support. Now, we realize that our sufficiency doesn't come from ourselves. It comes ultimately from the Lord. But uh, we have to understand that what God provides for us we need to be satisfied and, and uh, content that that would be enough. I, I want to look a little bit at the major causes of discontentment uh, first. I, I think we need to understand where discontentment or lack of contentment, contentment comes from, dissatisfaction. And the first, uh, I would... Uh, call it the attractiveness of wealth. And this is what the world pervades today. Turn to 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, if you would. 
Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves and pierced themselves with many pangs. Just a couple other verses I'd call to your attention, you don't have to turn to them. One's Luke 12:15. Jesus, he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And in Hebrews 13:5 it says, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And one other passage to just read comes from James. You're familiar with it, James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I would submit to you that a major cause of discontent, discontentment is simply our own covetousness. And I would put it this way, that, that uh, this attractiveness of, of wealth is really a discontent of covetousness. Um, tried to sort of summarize what covetousness is. Obviously, it's the desire uh, for things. That, for how would you say that you are covet, uh, were coveting something? I would say you are coveting something if um, you desire it to such an extent that you would go to almost any length to get it, and if you couldn't have it, uh, you would be very, very dissatisfied. Really, covetousness is the sin of not trusting in God's provision. What you're saying is if you covet is that what God has provided me is not enough. And obviously that's sin. It's an insidious sin, I think, that often goes unrecognized and unconfessed. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once mentioned or commented that he had ver heard virtually every sin confessed except the sin of covetousness. We would not admit that we covet things or possessions or status. It doesn't have to be wealth necessarily. People can, can covet almost anything. Um, and, uh, you know, positions, your job, your boss's job or whatever. We accumulate wealth because they provide us a feeling of comfort, power, and security. But if you look at what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, even at their best, Wealth is unreliable and gives no assurance in this life. And certainly, as we read from what uh, the passage in, in Matthew this morning in our responsive reading, what Jesus said, uh, wealth really has absolutely no benefit for eternal life. I think we need to sensitize ourselves uh, to the dangers of, of covetousness and make up our minds to resist it. Uh, in, in the passage in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, uh, just summarize that uh, 
Paul says that covetousness is deceitful. It corrupts our view of what real truth is, spiritual truth. It contaminates our values. It destroys our lives. It produces all kinds of other sins, and it swerves us from the faith. You see at the end of the passage there in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, it says, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced them themselves through with many pangs. I think if, if we can deal with the sin of covetousness, and we'll be talking a little bit later on how to, how to view that and how to actively deal with it, um, contentment will, will naturally follow if that's the problem that's causing you discontent. But I think there's another uh, cause of discontent that uh, crops up, and that is due to difficult or hurtful circumstances. Turn to Philippians 4, 11 through 13. So we see the first major dis cause of discontentment or dissatisfaction has to do with the attractiveness of wealth or the discontent of covetousness. Here in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says, Not that I am speaking in, of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A second major cause of discontent in our lives is, is unpleasant circumstances that we find ourselves in. If you look at Paul here, his situation was downright terrible. He, um, he was under house arrest in Rome. He was charged with sedition, treason, and other serious crimes. He had appealed to the highest court, to Caesar, and he had no other options left except to wait for Caesar to call him and hear his case. It seemed as though his ministry that the Lord had called to him was over. And if anyone had the, the right to be impatient or unhappy and discontent, it was, it was Paul. Instead, he wrote to the Philippians that he had learned in whatever circumstance he was in to be content. By stating it actually in the way he did, he, his testimony declares that he recognized the danger of becoming discontent in his situation. The very fact that he said he had to learn to be content, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, how he did that. The fact that he said that, realize, you, you realize that, that in an offhanded way, he says, really, it really bothered me. I had difficulty with this becoming or being content in situations like this. We've all been there, I think, an unpleasant job, you know, a trying boss, a difficult marriage, maybe a divorce even, or singleness. You want to get married and you're single. Family problems, lack of friends, persecution, health issues, and it goes on and on and on. We, have, we find ourselves in circumstances which are simply not pleasant. And because of that, we come, become dissatisfied or discontent. And I, call, I really call this uh, the discontent of rebellion. This, this type of discontentment really is the sin of, of not trusting in God's providence. We dealt with wealth, it's the sin of not trusting in God's provision. Here we're saying, Lord, you put me in this situation, and I don't think it's good for me. 
I don't think you know what you're doing. It's unpleasant. I don't want to be here. I don't want to get out of it. And so what we're saying to the Lord, in effect, is we're saying, I don't believe you're doing what's right for me or what's best for me. We noticed in Hebrews 13, we saw, uh, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord promises that he won't forsake us. They don't never leave us. They will help us and that we need not fear. We read that in uh, Matthew. He says in, in other places in, in the gospel that the hairs of our head were numbered and we're, you know, he knows the sparrows and we're of more worth than many sparrows. Nothing can separate us from his love. All of that, but we're just not happy where God, where God has put us or placed us, right? In essence, we rebel against his sovereignty over our lives and we express it through some form of discontentment. And I think if we can realize that, we realize really what the basic sin is, it will help us focus on the real issue when we face a discontentment of rebellion. I think to be honest uh, with this idea of discontentment, uh, there is discontentment that is, that is not wrong or not bad or that is genuine. And uh, I want to take a look at that this just briefly, because I think we want a balanced view here. Turn to Hebrews, Hebrews 12, if you would, verses 5 and 6. While you're turning there, I'll read some of the verses. Time is fleeting here. Isaiah 48, 22 says, There is no peace, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. John 16, 8, we know it well. Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, he says that when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And there, you're in, there in Hebrews 12, it says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then a little bit later on in that passage in verse 11, he says, for the, the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. You know, you're, you're dis, displeased, you're dissatisfied with the situation, but he says later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. This type of discontentment is really produced by the Lord, and it's a dis discontentment due to personal sin. And sin in our lives affects our relationship with God and ultimately creates emptiness in the soul. For the person who is not saved, there's an emptiness there that can only be filled by God. For the believer that continues, continues in sin, now we're not talking about something here where you sin and you confess it. We're talking about here uh, someone who is continuously uh, abiding in sin, practicing sin as a believer, and the Lord steps in and begins to discipline that individual. It's unpleasant. The Lord is designing it to be unpleasant. He's designing it to be unpleasant so that we will recognize our sin and come back to him. It's a legitimate discontentment, and I call it the discontentment of conviction. If you're convicted 
about your sin, you are not going to be happy. You're going to be discontent. It's been designed by God that way. But it's easily fixed. How do we fix it? Obvious, I think. We, we repent. If, if, if you haven't trusted Christ as your, as your Savior, as an individual, the Holy Spirit is working on you. He convicts you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. There can be no true contentment in your life or the life of anyone who lives outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. There can be no true contentment for anyone who lives outside of faith in Jesus Christ. We read in Ecclesiastes that contentment is the gift of God. And the first aspect of that gift is his gift to you of a Savior in Jesus Christ. If you will not receive that gift, you are not going to have contentment. So the solution to that, obviously, is belief on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only solution for your sin. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And believers, if you're walking in sin, God chases his children. The only solution is to repent and turn back to him. Confession and repentance. And God removes the discipline and the discontentment that comes from the, from the uh, discontentment of, of conviction. Matthew 11, 28, 29 said, Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. And later on in that, that, ver that passage, he says, you'll find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls is really contentment. But it can't be, it can't be found if you're living in sin. God will not give you contentment if you live in sin. <clears throat> What's the consequences of discontentment? I've got to move on quickly here. Discontentment or the lack of contentment is associated with many other spiritual problems. Either they're forms of discontentment or results of discontentment. And if you're discontent in your life, how do you recognize it? Well, you're going to be a, you'll be able to recognize it maybe by its fruits or some other things that goes along with it. And one of these, uh, some of these things that are are related to it. And again, we want to say that. You know, we all go through periods of discontentment. Hopefully they're short. What we're talking about here is discontentment lingers over a period of time. You just cannot find peace. You're not happy. You're discontent with your job. You're discontent in your marriage. It's something that's a prolonged uh, uh, time in your life. The first one we read about in Matthew, it's anxiety. Discontentment coupled with fear produces anxiety. When discontentment is of such a nature that it threatens our well-being as an individual, we become anxious. So really, anxiety is a form of discontentment when you're fearful. Anxiety is a fear that something bad is going to happen to you, whether it can be in your finances, your, your position, your job, health, circumstances, whatever. And a good example of this is Paul. Paul certainly could have been dissatisfied or discontent because he was a prisoner. That's one thing. But his dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction could turn into anxiety when he thought about what was going to happen to him before, when he stood before Caesar. If he 
in thinking about this, he contemplated a, 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 um, an unfavorable, unfavorable decision by Caesar. Caesar, it could have what? Cost him his life. So he could have not only been discontent, he could have been anxious because what is going, was going to happen to him when he stood before Caesar. But he does say, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a little bit to the secret that he learned about uh, being content, but that's the view that he took. Another thing that can happen, and we see this more often, I think, because it's a, maybe a lesser of a problem, but that is one of frustration, impatience, grumbling, murmuring, complaining, and uh, more aggressively, anger. Discontentment, if we're discontent, it usually can't be contained in our hearts and minds. It comes out. And when it comes out, it's expressed by complaining, grumbling, murmuring, whatever. In James 5, 8 and 9, it says, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And of course, we know Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. If you're grumbling, you're not happy, you're discontent. So the problem really isn't the grumbling, it's the discontentment. If you deal with the discontentment, the grumbling and complaining will go away. The other thing we read in James is that discontentment can lead to jealousy, envy, anger, hatred, and eventually murder. We read it in James 4, 1 through 3. What causes, causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? The passions that are a war within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Fighting, quarreling, envying, jealousy, all resulted from initially discontentment. And obviously, discontentment can cause us discouragement and depression. So if you see any of those things operating in your life, the real problem is that you're not happy. You're, not, you're, you're discontent. What's the cure? How do we cultivate a heart of contentment? We'll have to go through these fast. I've got a lot more, but time is, is fleeting us. The first thing that we need to realize is that it affects all of us. Contentment is a learned virtue. Paul mentioned that in Philippians. It's a learned virtue, and it is a constant struggle. I don't care whoever you are, you've, we've all faced this. Paul said in Philippians 4.11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The root cause, I, I thought about this, what is the root cause of discontentment? Really, the root cause of discontentment is the love of self. We are selfish in nature. And the problem is, is that the love of self is a given. It's really built into us by God. And it's not necessarily bad. The reason we, we look uh, for self-preservation or the will to live is because God is in, in embedded in us a, a love of self. And, and even the scripture indicates this. It says in Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't know how to properly love yourself, you don't know how to properly love your, your neighbor. The love of self, however, has to be balanced with a proper love of God and the proper love of others. We know that the law is summarized by what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole, the whole issue with this is that contentment is not natural for any of us. It's simply not natural. We are naturally discontent when anything affects us in a negative way. Anything that affects you in a negative way, your immediate reaction is one of discontent, either a mild form of discontent or a major form of discontent. And the other problem is that our competitive spirit within us drives us to compare to compare with others, to complain, and to covet. Um, contentment is hard to attain. And I think if we keep that in, in, in our focus, we won't become discouraged by it. The Apostle Paul had to learn how to be content. It wasn't natural for him, so we need to take heart. But it also doesn't come by accident. And our will is a major factor. It, it takes discipline and it's a spiritual battle. So just a, a couple things on how, what we can do when we see discontentment come up in our lives. And I think the most important thing, and we've been even talking about it this morning, earlier on in the, in the service, is that we really need to focus on the eternal and not the temporal. Um, God doesn't measure our lives by our possessions or our circumstances. In Luke 12, 15, he says, And he said to them, Take care and be a guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And we read it in Ecclesiastes, and it's in some other verses in Ecclesiastes, that we know that nothing of an earthly nature lasts or satisfies. And most importantly, in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, we don't have time to turn there, we know that our eternal rewards don't depend on any of these temporary things that God has given us on earth. None of our possessions, our family, our circumstances, our job, any of that is going to have an impact on our eternal rewards. Now, how we react to those things, how we live, how we... Uh, look to eternal values within those things is going to affect our eternal rewards, but they themselves do not affect our eternal rewards. Remember this, that Christ was completely content. His desire was simply to do the will of the Father. What did he have? I was thinking about this. You know, the Lord was able to create, you know, uh, feed 5,000, right? He, he made uh, out of what was one fish and a couple loaves, he fed 5,000. Do you know that all those baskets that they took up, instead of putting bread in those, he could have filled them with gold? Why didn't the Lord, who had all the power in the world, I mean, he could have created himself a mansion to live on earth. He could have, he could have operated out of uh, you know, the Crystal Palace when he, when he was in, in Israel. Why didn't he do that? He realized that that had absolutely no impact on spiritual, true spiritual values. 
Remember this also that Paul encouraged Timothy not to be, see, to be deceived by the world's standards of success. Uh, turn to this. 1 Timothy 6.11. You'll be able to look at this, mention a couple of others, and then we're going to have to quit. But I think this is important. This passage in Timothy, uh, early on in the passage we read it, it talks about, uh, you know, piercing yourself through with, with uh, many, many sorrows, a love of money, pursuing that, many have wandered from the faith. But then he tells Timothy how to combat this. And in 1 Timothy 6.11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And in 6.6, he preceded the passage by saying, Godly, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. What was he telling Timothy? He was telling Timothy, look, you're getting all this. It was actually coming from false teachers, but it's really the teaching of the world. He's saying, look, all of that is deception. If you want great gain, what should you pursue? You should pursue spiritual things. Look at the eternal. Pursue Godliness, steadfastness, gentleness, faith, love. In Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Paul said, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, seek, keep seeking things, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. I think this idea of contentment are being content with what we have, what God has provided for us, really has its root, um, getting victory over it and learning the secret of, of attaining it, really has its root in looking at spiritual things and not physical things. We need to focus on the eternal, not on the temporal. Three more things, I'm just going to mention them. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, Paul said, Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I think the second uh, area where we can really get victory over this idea of discontentment is to be thankful. Paul encouraged the believers, Christians, to practice a theology of thanksgiving. If we'd be thankful for the Lord for what he's provided rather than for what he has not provided, I think it would go a long way to curing our discontentment. It's virtually impossible to be thankful and discontent at the same time. The other thing that Paul tells them to do here is to pray. Pray about everything. We know that, but in reality we often do everything first and then we pray as a last resort. And with discontentment, it's no, no exception. When we're not happy about something, I think we have to admit it. We have to realize that we're unhappy. That's, that's the first step in success. When Paul talks there in Philippians, he says, I've learned. He, he had to admit that the problem attacked him. And when we do that, 
he turned to the Lord in prayer. When you find yourself, when you first sense yourself becoming discontent, you need to pray. Pray about your attitude, gaining the proper perspective that is a spiritual one, and also looking at possible solutions. I, the fact that you're discontent doesn't mean that there might not be something the Lord would work out for you to improve your situation. You need to pray about that. God promises his peace in these verses if we'll just go to him in prayer and thanksgiving. And I alluded to this earlier, just mention it. We need to submit to God. We need to submit to his, God, to his sovereignty and trust his provision and his providence. We talked about his provision that has to do with our possessions, his providence that has to do with our circumstances. If we truly believe that God will never leave us or forsake us, that he really cares about us, that he's really interested in us, then we need to be thankful for what he's done for us and what he's provided. We read it in Matthew. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, unto you. And we know well, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God. God promises to take care of us as of his children. I will say this. There is nothing wrong with wanting to succeed or to do better. You know, we might be discontent because we can see a better way of doing something or better situation. As a matter of fact, God in his word teaches us to be thrifty and diligent in order to increase our substance, improve our circumstances. He encourages us to work hard and to achieve, achieve and rejoice in our success. If you look at other passages in Ecclesiastes, it talks about this. And that's where prayer enters in. We need to pray about it. We'll have to, we have to realize when things don't go just the way we've expected, we need to have confidence in a wise and loving God, in his providence and his provision. Discontentment disappears when we truly believe that God supplies all that we need and that he will give us the strength, as Paul says in Philippians, to handle any circumstance that comes up in our lives. And some other things to say, but we're going to have to close here. Uh, we have a BBS meeting. But I trust that, if anything, this has sensitized you this morning to the, the, to the problem of discontent. And when you see it come up in your lives, don't slough it off. It is a problem. It, it is sin. We need to realize that. And we need to deal with it. And I trust maybe some of the things that we've said this morning will help you be able to deal with the problem of discontent with it when it comes up in your life and truly help you to be a more content Christian in what God has provided and what he's done in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the time. Uh, I do pray that some of the things that were said today will really help us as believers. We know that you do love us, that you do care for us. Sometimes we don't understand what you're doing in our lives. And if we admit it, we're just plain dissatisfied. We don't like it. Lord, help us, forgive us of the sin. Help us to realize that there are more important things than uh, ourselves, that your glory, your plan, your purpose is more important than, than us. Help us to focus on these things. And Lord, as we do, as we go to prayer, 
and we're thankful for what you've given us. We pray, Lord, that we would learn to be a much more contented Christian. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.